0: Welcome in to the Prospect Podcast. I am Chris Matlow from cbssports.com and as usual I am joined by
1: Matthew Pollard. and on today's episode of the Prospect Podcast we are going to dive into everything that we saw, all the observations we made in Alabama's demolition of Ohio State last night in the national title game 52-24. to 24, really wasn't ever a game although it was close in score in the first half, it just always felt like Alabama was going to score every time they got the football and Ohio state was going to really struggle and have to have a perfect drive to put points on the board. I thought the game was completely over when Ryan day decided to kick that field goal. I think it was in the second quarter at some point they had like a fourth and goal, or maybe it was even like a fourth and long from inside the ten. Decided to kick the field goal, made it 21-17. And this is an Alabama team that you cannot kick field goals against. But we're not going to go into the ins and outs of the games. We're obviously going to talk about the prospects. And there were loads of them, mostly on the Alabama side uh, in this podcast. Got to start with Devontae Smith. 12 catches, 215 yards, and three touchdowns in the first half. A lot of those were national title game records. And Matt... Correct me if I'm wrong or if I just wasn't seeing this the right way. When they flash, I think when he had 11 catches for like 200 yards, it felt like he had like four catches for 50 yards. He was that smooth and effortless in the first half, and we saw the entire skill set from Devontae Smith. What did you take from those first two quarters from the Heisman
2: winner? Well, I mean, to start with, he just looks like a polished receiver who's ready for the NFL, which, you know, a lot of these guys, when they come out as top draft picks, it's based on athleticism, projection, upside, and not always, hey, this guy is a great route runner. He looks like a technician. And then he just has this explosiveness to him that maybe it is because he's so light. (laughs) I know that that's going to be the biggest debate. Do you really want to draft a guy that's under 200 pounds at the wide receiver position, but maybe there's just this extra level of quickness and fluidity because he isn't carrying the extra pounds. I don't know. Uh, but it really looks like guys that you watch on Sunday already. And normally you're trying to figure out, well, can he kind of shore that up or can he figure this out? Or, you know, he's running by people with his peer speed in college. I remember this with Henry Ruggs; Like he was so much faster than everyone else in college. It's like, Uh, Our NFL guy is going to slow him down. And they, you know, they did to some extent. They didn't to some extent. But with Smith, I think he really matches up to the things that you say um, uh, work out really well in the NFL, creating separation, route technique, um, being able to be on the same page with your quarterback, which seems to be a huge deal for them. And then a lot of it, too, is also scheme. I mean, and this is the hardest thing, and I'm sure that we'll talk about this throughout the podcast, is a lot of times guys are running wide open. And when we discuss whether Mac Jones is an NFL quarterback, that's another thing to factor in. And I think it's hard with Alabama prospects now, and not so much with Smith. I think he's a clear cut NFL prospect. It maybe we'll go in the top 10, 15 or even higher than that. Uh, but you know, with a lot of these players we're going to talk about, it's always the question of, are you just playing on the greatest team? And, and that's what is boosting you. But I don't think that's the case with Devonte Smith. I, I think he's the real deal. Well, Two observations
1: that I made that kind of speak to the points that you made early on, there was a tackle of Devontae Smith, like in somewhere in the first half where he got like thrown to the ground pretty hard by I think a safety, like one of Ohio state's strong safeties. And you just got this sense of like, Ooh, that's that could be what's going to happen to him at the NFL level, that he's going to get like thrown to the ground really hard because he is listed at 170, 175 pounds. But what you said about his fluidity, I write that a lot in scouting reports. We probably said that multiple times already on these podcasts, like, like a fluid athlete. I don't know if I've ever seen a wide receiver who is as fluid as Devontae Smith. Some of those swing passes to him against Ohio State, he is immediately in top gear, and it doesn't look like he's straining his body whatsoever. And what I like from him, we would seen... Throughout the season, him running routes, intermediate level, uh, routes that have multiple breaks down the field, post corners. Last night was kind of a gadgety game for him. Like that one touchdown where he did the fake orbit motion and then reversed back, caught the pass. Like that was a touchdown that was created before the snap. And to think that, okay, you're only getting this really crisp route runner, but he might not be that dynamic in space. I think Steve Sarkeesian kind of showed that Devontae Smith can be used as that space player, that gadget type that is being more, or that is more trendy today. So, um, and the one last thing about Devontae Smith, it's really hard to really give him any more accolades this season. I tweeted last night that before the year, after what we saw in 2019 from Jamar Chase, as a 19-year-old, 20 touchdowns, from a traits perspective, from an NFL draft angle, contested catchability, yards after the catch speed route running all the gadget stuff against Noah Igbenogany who went in the first round AJ Terrell who went in the first round uh the Alabama quarterbacks Trevon Diggs who went in the second round it looked like impossible for any wide receiver to leapfrog him even after he opted out it was like we don't know where Jamar Chase is going to go but he's going to be the first wide receiver off the board you were on Twitter last night Matt so was I it was like the consensus Devonta Smith is going to be the first receiver off the board and he could go as high as number three to the Miami Dolphins.
2: Yeah. And I'm not sure that I'm, entirely sold on that or not me neither there's always outliers I mean there's always the Aaron Donald where you say look the guy is not really hitting the weight requirement for that position and then he turns out to be the greatest defensive player of our era it does happen but usually outliers are outliers for a reason because if you're playing the odds it doesn't work out Uh, and you know how many wide receivers in the NFL are this guy's weight and the the concern for me would be like I I know that you can scheme receiver is open better than ever in the NFL now you can move guys into the slot but at some point if you're going to be a superstar wide receiver you're going to have press coverage on the outside with a dude who's six foot one and weighs 210 pounds and has the strongest hands in the world and is going to be able to stop you at the line of scrimmage can you get off the line of scrimmage with your moves if you only weigh 175 pounds and can you stay healthy in college football it's half as physical as the NFL. It's half as violent as the NFL. I mean, how many times has Devontae Smith gotten popped Hard. I mean, that will happen in the NFL. Um, You know, even though they've uh, made things a lot easier on wide receivers, you're going to take a lot of hits, um, especially with the requirements to run after catch in the NFL. And Jamar Chase is big and he's powerful. And like you said, I mean, he has the route running technique, the contested catches. I I would probably still lean on Jamar Chase first over Smith. Um, But, you know, I, I do think there's always that possibility that somebody breaks the mold.
1: Yeah, I think I'm in the same kind of school of thought as you, that I think there's a little bit of recency bias, and I'm not taking anything away from Devonta Smith's season, his career at Alabama, what he did in that national title game. He was dominant all season. The one thing that I think Jamar Chase, or that I know Jamar Chase still has on Devonta Smith, he had that dominant 2019 season as a 19-year-old sophomore. Right. Devonta Smith is 22, and, and in the scouting world at receivers there's a big thing about wide receiver age and how early you are dominating imagine if Jamar Chase played this season then decided to come back in 2021 and play at LSU for another season and not enter until 2022 like imagine this season that Jamar Chase could have if he would have stayed at LSU for another two seasons so that's the only thing that I think a lot of teams will have to look at and they cannot ignore is the age difference mm-hmm. between these two players. And really rewatching Jamar Chase over the summer to a lot of the things that I said and you said, complete skill set. There were amazing contested catch uh, plays from him against at future NFL cornerbacks who were older than him. The yards after the catch was out of control. The route running was there, and I think he's a little bigger and more physical, of course, than Devonte Smith. So It will be really fascinating to see. I do think, though, some teams and some GMs will have Devontae Smith as the number one wide receiver in this draft, and we'll see if – I mean, always after the national title game, there is bowl game bias that a lot of times fizzles out as we get away from it and even as we get into the combine in March and April. uh, But with just how lauded of a season he just had and how everyone loved that a wide receiver won the Heisman Trophy and is a skinny kid – uh, that I think there is some staying power. And really, it's a fun thing for us to talk about, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, I've, I've said that before, and, and I'm going to continue with that thought that I don't really care where he gets picked. He's still a first round prospect. And if Jamar Chase goes ahead of him, that has, it's nothing, it's not shameful for Devontae Smith, but it's crazy that after what we saw from that LSU team, that their star receiver uh, got leapfrogged to, in a lot of people's minds, by this. Six foot, 170 pound wide receiver from Alabama.
2: Yeah, no, right. And uh, I will say that wide receivers do come in all shapes and sizes. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's, uh, you know, guys who have been six foot six who have succeeded in the NFL, and then there's Cole Beasley at five foot nine who's succeeded in the NFL. Or uh, you know, also all, all sorts of guys that, uh, you know, Cooper cup. I remember when he was coming out, it was, well, you know, his 40 is not that great and all that stuff. And, and then he he's was become, old too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And he, he's become, you know, a star wide receiver in the NFL. So there are a lot of different ways you can do it. Uh, I just think if you're giving me the two um, Jamar chase is probably my pick, but that's, that's not a diss of course of uh, Devonte Smith and going from
1: one Athletic marvel in Devontae Smith. We have to transition to Najee Harris. I've been as enthralled with what I've seen from this running back this season as I have from Devontae Smith. Like every week, Devontae Smith was making plays, running past guys. You're wondering how he's doing it at his size. How about Najee Harris on the other end of the spectrum? 6'1", 6'2", 230 pounds. We talked about him, I think, on the first podcast, that I think ultimately he will be – a better value pick than Travis Etienne. I think at this point, there will be teams that view him as a better running back prospect than Travis Etienne. I think Travis Etienne, I said it on that podcast, fits the mold of an Alvin Kamara. He's a little smaller. He's a little more of a slash and dash type. But Najee Harris, last night, only 79 yards rushing, did have over 70 yards receiving, made a ridiculous kind of body control catch on a pass that was behind him for a touchdown in the first half. Some of the cuts he made in that game, and he has made all season at his size, he is so loose-hipped. I think he has great vision and awesome acceleration at his size. He seems like, again, Le'Veon Bell in his prime to me with the soft hands, the ability to cut at that big. I I think, and I wrote it at Sports.com this morning, he's up there in terms of, and I said athletic marvel, the big backs that I have scouted who I thought had all pro talent, Zeke Elliott. Joe Mixon, um, and Saquon Barkley. I think those three are kind of in their own class, in my opinion, the last five to seven years in terms of backs who just had the size, the athleticism, the power, could catch the football, do everything that you would – like, if you were building a running back prospect, it would be one of those three. I'm ready to put Najee Harris into – he's a little older, too. He's 22 years old. He was a senior. Some of those players came out after their junior year. Um, But I think Najee Harris will be, and yes, the running back position is devalued, but will be a really interesting prospect to see where he ultimately lands and how he plays right out of the gate as a feature back.
2: And I think if we put aside the debate over running backs and just talk about him as a prospect and as a player – I mean wow. There was a move that he made last night. Maybe this was after he caught the ball, which was a great catch. I mean, it was kind of a floating ball and it was like uh, you know, having to track that in the air and and you know, turn up field, but just a move that he made that kind of reminded me of Adrian Peterson from that like you you mentioned the 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 loose hips and the balance and all those things and the power that he has. I mean, if you're putting him into a a decent situation that relies on the running back a lot and has a good run blocking offense, I mean, he could be immensely valuable for you. And I think that there's this focus on the playmaker, the Alvin Kamara, the Christian McCaffrey, which is right in my mind. I mean, guys who can line up in different spots and run bubble screens or go down the field. I mean, that's hugely valuable. But most running backs are catching swing passes out of the backfield, and then it's Can you make a play? I mean, this is, you know, Delvin Cook is a receiver out of the backfield by his catch numbers, but he's mostly catching passes behind the line of scrimmage. Like, Not every running back is being asked to be that guy who goes downfield. So can you do that even a little? And I think that last night he showed that he can do that. He can track the ball. He does have soft enough hands to make those plays. He's not going to drop it when you throw it to him. And then when you get him in space, he is very hard to tackle. And a lot of the NFL offenses, they're drawn up to, Uh, put a running back one-on-one with a defensive back at some point. And him, like you mentioned, at 230 pounds with that type of elusiveness and power, I mean, that's going to be a very tough matchup for even NFL defensive backs. And so, you know, if you're a team that is already set in a lot of positions and you get into that second round, it makes a lot of sense. If you draft him in the first round, you're probably making that same you know, value mistake. Um, and, and sorry, I know I said I wasn't going to talk about the running back thing. But like just by value, it's not a great idea to draft him in the top. But, I mean, he is a guy that could make a huge impact for a team right away that's ready to win. And the most
1: important point to this running back discussion to kind of segue off that, um, what you just said, that a team that is ready to win – if you want someone that can be a very important and big part of your offense for three or four seasons, again, we, I think you and I see eye to eye on this. Don't extend your guy. Don't give him this crazy contract that you're going to regret. But for four seasons, if you can get Najee Harris at like a couple million a year or whatever it is for a second round pick today, because of what he can do out of the backfield as well. And they, they've lined him up as a slot receiver this year. I mean, that touchdown was a long throw down the sideline. This is not, oh, you have to throw him a swing pass or a screen. Right. That does not fall into the category of, of running backs don't matter. I, I think if you're a good team or you're on the upswing and you're just trying to, say, give your young quarterback more offensive weapons, get him Najee Harris in the second round and don't feel bad if there's any analyst saying that it's too early, you shouldn't pick a running back till the fourth round. Najee Harris and Travis Etienne but really Najee Harris because of his size uh, I think he can really be that focal point of an offense we've seen a lot of those teams that do have a Dalvin Cook a Christian uh, that they have the offenses that are really high powered and difficult to stop like whether it be Christian McCaffrey or Dalvin Cook Zeke Elliott earlier in his career I, th- I don't think it was um, a coincidence that some of those offenses were some of the best offenses in the league because yes they had good offensive lines they had other pieces to the offense but to have a multi-dimensional running back um, whose contact balance is through the roof their power is amazing and they're good receivers I think there's a lot of value uh, in someone like Najee Harris he's just fun to watch every week I don't understand how he's doing the things that he's doing at his size.
2: And from a statistical perspective, by the way, um, one out of every five runs went for more than 10 yards this year. And for his career, and this is uh, from PFF, he averages 3.7 yards after contact. Per carry, and, and think about 3.7 yards per carry is almost there to an average carry, and he's doing that after contact. So yeah, I agree with you that um, if you're a team that is trying to rebuild your entire roster, it's probably not a good idea to draft a running back, no matter how good, no matter how explosive. But if you're a team that just needs that position just needs another playmaker who can like you said if if you need him to line up at different spots but mostly just you know somebody who can control the game on the ground make plays in space um you know i i think that that's a good pick it's sort of like you know detroit picked deandre swift last year and i thought regrettable even though he's good like regrettable because you're not really ready to compete for a championship but if you're right there and you want that one more weapon who's going to help your quarterback uh, Najee Harris could be great for you
1: yeah I think a team like the Dolphins like uh, any team that kind of was on the cusp of the playoffs or maybe even some of these teams that lost in the first round of the playoffs they're like we just need more weapons I'm thinking about it Najee Harris at 6'1 or 6'2 two and 230, like is he that different from an H-back? Not really, but he can carry the football really well and will be outstanding between the tackles on those plays that you're going to run 40 or 50% of the time, those handoffs. But there's H-backs that are, that are these fullback tight end hybrids that can catch the ball and are good after the catch. That's what you get with Najee Harris. We will talk about a lot more Alabama prospects because obviously they really shined, and they came into this game with more – draft prospects in this draft class I do want to get your thoughts so just so it's not me giving my thoughts and then you having to talk after me what do you think we can glean from what Justin Fields had to deal with and how he played last night despite losing to Alabama
2: I think that one of the big takeaways from this entire college football playoff from Justin Fields is the dude is tough as hell that he didn't give up, that he was still battling, he was still trying to put points on the board late in that game, and they were continuing to pressure him and pressure him and pressure him. And one of the things that's hard is that all quarterbacks struggle under pressure, all of them, every single one, 100%. Tom Brady is a much worse quarterback when pressured than when clean, and so that's going to be the case with Justin Fields. My question is though, how much of the pressure is Justin Fields going to bring upon himself? And can he develop a playmaker type of element to his game? And I don't mean running because his running is great and he's super fast. But I mean, when things break down, can you create space for yourself to find a solid platform to throw the ball from? Because I feel like he is kind of staying in one spot a lot when he drops back, and that drew some of the pressure when clearly their offensive line, a great offensive line, by the way, was being dominated by the Alabama defensive line, which, uh, you know, welcome to how it's like in the NFL, honestly, because the defensive (laughs) lines are so much better than the offensive lines, and I think that it was kind of a barometer of of like, yeah, you know, when he comes into the league, this is a huge thing that he's going to have to work on is, can you get rid of the ball quick? Uh, I don't have his snap to release number. i see if I can find it. But um, it just feels like there are times where you're going in your head, like one, To you're gonna have to throw, you're gonna have to throw it, you're gonna have to throw it. But I also think that you know what he went through in this college football playoff and the toughness that he showed and the leadership that he showed um, to keep battling and to keep coming back through the injury, you have to be impressed by that because in the NFL, you're gonna get your butt whooped, you're gonna get hurt, you're gonna have to battle through things. And I, I thought that he showed a lot from that element. I mean, we knew he could throw the ball tremendously well, it's just Is he going to be able to speed himself up in that processing to, when his offensive line is overmatched, be able to play a different way, kind of play to the situation? I didn't think he did that uh, last night.
1: Yeah, and that's really been the book on Justin Fields all season, that I mentioned it in the last podcast. Against Northwestern, against Indiana, those were the problems, where on the plays that he had to, that he should have got the ball out quickly, but he wasn't able to, does his playmaker instinct take over that naturally uh, to bring in Zach Wilson into this podcast? I think with Zach Wilson, it does that when Zach Wilson know his offensive line, didn't uh, afford a lot of pressures this season, but when he, his first or second read was not there, he was either moving up in the pocket or sliding left, sliding right, directing traffic down the field, pointing wide receivers to get open. I don't know if Justin Fields again, is that natural of a playmaker? I do think, At times, he's such a good athlete that he still can make those plays outside the pocket. And I did notice a few times, especially in the first half, he did move around and and drift in the pocket away from pressure. There was like a third down pass uh, that got tipped but actually was still completed to Garrett Wilson where he like slid to his right and then slid up and there was a lot of chaos around him. Like seeing that play was good. We haven't seen that a lot from him that was a little glimmer that he might be able to develop that. I, I do think, um, and I remember being at the combine like four or five years ago, Mike Mack used to always do a press conference at the end. Cause he was the commentator. You're probably there. Yeah. That he said that he was telling a story that Kurt Warner told him that you either, once you get to the NFL, you can either naturally move inside the pocket with chaos around you or not. Like that is innate. That is not a coach skill. And certainly, by the time you have reached the pinnacle of the profession, making it to the NFL, Blaine Gabbert wasn't all of a sudden going to just become Drew Brees inside the pocket after he left Missouri. So the fact that we've seen it a little bit from Justin Fields, I think is good. And it wasn't a dud of a, of a performance last night, which I liked. Um, it, it could have turned into a three or four interception game. He might have tried to force the issue a little bit too much. The touchdown to Garrett Wilson in the third corner on a corner route from the slot to bring it within, what, 14 or or 20 points at that point to show that, like you said, that he has a lot of fight in him uh, and he can throw the football very far down the field with a lot of velocity and good accuracy. And then the toughness factor, I think that is what we're going to hear so much about throughout the pre-draft process that these GMs love, that, that he was a gamer against Clemson. He threw for 500 yards, whatever it was, 400 yards. He had 600 yards of offense. Um, and then to come back clearly overmatched against Alabama and never truly give up I wouldn't have minded Justin Fields to take a few more shots especially early there was a couple of third downs where he's checking it down and that's kind of the ebb and the flow like do you want him to check it down and get it out of his hands quick or do you want him to hold it an extra second and maybe try to make a riskier throw I think just given the game situation and that we knew that that Ohio state had to make about 10 ridiculous plays to stay in it. I would have liked to see a little more aggression from him. Um, And that's all boils down to maybe you see him a little different and it's fine, but I see him a lot in the same vein as Deshaun Watson, that early in Deshaun Watson's career, he took a ton of hits. He was like leading the league in sacks there was really this narrative that Deshaun Watson was more of the problem than his offensive line because he held the ball, held the ball. I think Watson is a little bit more of a basketball player. He's a little more natural when things get crazy, but the big arm, accurate, deep ball thrower, not someone that's going to be uh, Philip Rivers in his prime or Eli Manning in his prime that's going to get it out in two seconds, Tom Brady, but, you know what you're getting it with the arm strength and the athleticism from Justin Fields. So despite not a crazy stat line and losing in a pretty emphatic way to end his college career, I, I think it was a pretty good way relative to all that for Justin Fields to go out.
2: Yeah, and I mean you look what happened to Trevor Lawrence too. I mean, if your team is mm-hmm. outmatched, there's only so much that you can do. So you want to see like how did you react? How did you keep fighting? Or did you end up you know letting it get out of control because you just start throwing picks and you start turtling and things like that? And he didn't do that even though he's playing through an injury and and just that alone says to me like you're you're ready to take on some of the adversity that's going to happen to you in the NFL. I just think that if you're putting him into a system where he is going to be in a lot of empty or something like that, and you expect him to take care of the free rushers himself – that might not be the way to go, um, so like someone like Josh Allen does, where he is so good at just sort of going off schedule that you can rely on him doing that from game to game. And Russell Wilson is often the same way, not against the Rams recently, but often the same way where <laughs> if you want to put him in empty and then you know say, hey, if there's a free rusher or somebody beats their man, you'll just take care of it. I'm not sure Justin Fields is that guy, but – I I do think that if you put him in a situation where he's running a lot of bootlegs and a lot of play action where he can roll out and then, hey, if you've got a shot to take off, get 20 yards or 15 yards. But if you got somebody down the field, he can set and fire and make you know, as good a throws as anybody 20, 25 yards down the field. So I, I think that you know, whoever is drafting him, like keep that in mind and don't expect him to be like this baller and, and playmaker and, like you said, basketball player, because I just don't really see that despite his incredible athleticism.
1: Yeah, and this point moving off just his traits, uh, this is going to be really the storyline over the next three months. I think it, de- it really depends on where Justin Fields will fall will depend on the quarter, the head coach and the offensive coordinator that the Jets hire. That it- if-, if it's a guy that we know has had these weaker-armed quarterbacks that they're running a West Coast offense, that they want their quarterback to be a point guard, it's probably going to be Zach Wilson that's going to go number two overall. If it's more of an air raid, deep downfield shots, Um, offense, then I think that's when Justin Fields will ultimately go number two. So pay attention, not just to, you know, can the Jets head coach write the ship? Is he going to have a good marriage with their GM, Joe Douglas? But if he's an offensive mind, what type of system does he run? And if he's not, who is his offensive coordinator? And look back on the quarterbacks and this type of system that that offensive coordinator runs, because it's interesting that there is a completely different quarterback that you could be getting after Trevor Lawrence between Justin Fields and Zach Wilson. They're both very talented. It's kind of the similar thing as Devontae Smith to Chase. Both very talented. Both will go in the first round very
2: early, but they're just not, like, their strengths and their weaknesses are a lot different. Yeah, no, and that's what makes them really interesting. And both of them have been super fun to watch. And I think that uh, what's so unique about this draft is that, like, these guys, these three are in such a different cut. Like, usually you have maybe the one guy, and sometimes the one guy you got some concerns about. Like, even when Jared Goff was coming out, you're Mm -hmm. like – Oh, this is the number one guy, huh? Like, but these guys' athleticism, ridiculous arm talent, playmaking ability between the three of them uh, is really incredible. I mean, what what a class! And then there's the you know the question about Trey Lance too. So uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that either one you take Fields or Wilson, you are getting the nine out of ten type of caliber prospect. It's just How are you going to make it work? Because neither one of them I think is as good as Lawrence, where I I think he'll make it work no matter what offense he's in.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's, I mean, especially if the Jaguars hire Urban Meyer or someone with Ohio State ties, there'll be some speculation about Justin Fields going to number one. But I think that's a really good way to put it, that Jared Goff that final season at Kale, had like a couple of four and five interception games where he looked like what we've seen from him with the Rams, that he can – have a game where he completes 80 percent of his passes for 400 yards and five touchdowns and then he can look like a bottom five starting quarterback in the NFL the next week right. these quarterbacks don't really have those type of games on their resume and outside of Zach Wilson Lawrence and Fields have been these top recruits they started early in their careers they've looked way ahead of the curve and then Zach Wilson was pretty much impeccable all season with his accuracy the, the playmaking skills. so yeah this truly has become uh and it's finally lived up to the hype there's every year you're always like next year's quarterback class is going to be so good that's like a a tired draft community thought it lived up to it and then we got inserted Zach Wilson and then we have this intrigue with Trey Lance we talked a lot about quarterbacks let's go to the other side of the ball I want to talk about Christian Barmore uh who I thought earlier in the season people were trying to make him into Quinn and Williams he wasn't quite there yet Down the stretch, I zeroed in on him the last four or five Alabama games, uh, and he was unblockable. He had seven pressures against Notre Dame. He had four last night, a tackle for loss. He's kind of that typical Alabama offensive lineman. Like, you don't want to scout the helmet, but he's stronger than everyone. He looks like he's 35 years old. He's, like, 21. um, Very quick off the ball, uses his hands very well, and... Going from offense to defense and going from a strong quarterback class, this is a really weak defensive tackle class. So I think, talk about bowl game bias too, what he, what Christian Barmore did against Notre Dame and in this national title game against a really good Ohio State offensive line, like you mentioned, he completely dominated. I think he is the consensus top defensive tackle, and if a team, maybe like the Minnesota Vikings, needs to rebuild that defensive line and wants Someone that's well-rounded, that's powerful, that's quick, and that's pretty good with their hands and still young, where you feel like you can develop him. I really like what I've seen. After not being super impressed with Christian Barmore and thought it was more hype than substance, he really looks like a legitimate top 25 pick to me.
2: I love that you mentioned how old he looks. I'm like, can we get a you know,
1: birth certificate? It's like A'shaun Robinson 2.0, yeah. <laughs>
2: it's, it's like uh, when you played Little League and some kid w- would show up that was six feet tall and the other parents would be like, okay, all right, we got to check his birth certificate. How old is this kid? Same thing with Christian Barmore uh, or Christian Beastmore, as we could call him. Am I right? Okay, I'll stop. Uh, But, you know, last night, I mean, he was on the list of, to me, the top – one or two or three most interesting guys to watch in this game because nothing that Justin Fields did last night outside of some completely disastrous performance or unbelievable performance would have changed my opinion on where he's going to go. What I think of him as a prospect, like, okay, he's, he's great. Even if this doesn't go well, he's still a top three pick to me with Christian Barmore. I really wasn't sure what to expect going into the college football playoff. And after he took on a Notre Dame offensive line and, and beat them handily, who, that is really talented thought, okay, now you've got a couple of interior linemen here on Ohio state that are expected to be draft picks. So what are you going to do against them and against NFL caliber talents He annihilated them. I thought he was, he had a case, if not for Devontae Smith, he had a case for the best player on the field. It was like every time Justin Fields was dropping back, even if the PFF didn't count some of them as pressures, you just saw him walking his guy back. You saw him beating his man. And I think that, you know, when you're talking about what teams are looking for, nobody's going to get Aaron Donald, of course. But interior pressure is just killing teams. If you have guys who can do it, even uh, in that Buffalo and Indianapolis game, DeForest Buckner was a problem for the Buffalo offensive line, and and you saw how much Indianapolis gave up for DeForest Buckner, and then paid him. Uh, Those beasts are hard to come across, and you know Christian Barmore, like you said, some people were a little more down on him, but I think in this case. I'm, I'm going to go with the bull game bias because it's also the competition who you're playing and the big stage. And this guy, to me, wanted to show off what he could do, and he really did it.
1: Specifically to your point, not just, oh, they played two power programs in Notre Dame and Ohio State. There are future NFL players on the Fighting Irish offensive line and on the Buckeyes offensive line. Wyatt Davis, Josh Myers. Um, Liam Eichenberg, Tommy Kramer, like they're players that are, are getting top 100 buzz, if not first or second round buzz. And a lot of the times what we've seen in the Nick Saban era at Alabama, they have these Sean Robinson types that look like they're 40 years old when they're like 19, and they're so big, and they're so strong, so powerful, uh, and they make a lot of tackles for loss or, or at the line of scrimmage. They're great run defenders. And the guys who have actually – and it took Quinnen Williams – a year and a half to get there but you need obviously to have the quickness and the pass rush ability and I think Christian Barmore in a limited role last season and then more of a full-time role this year especially down the stretch in December and January showed that he's not just someone okay he's overpowering weak offensive alignment and can, you know, set a strong edge or can two gap. He can get up the field and into the backfield, get those tackles for loss just on individual athleticism alone and push the pocket with a bull rush and with pass rushing moves. So if there are those teams out there, again, like your Vikings that need defensive line to be reconstructed, you could two weeks ago, three weeks ago, you'd say, man, this class is terrible. And we've seen so many good defensive line classes over the past two or three drafts. Christian Barmore, I think kind of stands alone. I'm not positive about this. I haven't watched every defensive tackle out there, but I think, to see the quickness and the pass rushing ability and knowing what you're going to get from an Alabama coach defensive lineman that's going to be good against the run and get off blocks. Christian Barmore against the top competition, like you said, had a really strong performance and you can lock him probably more than any player outside of the quarterbacks. Into the first round because at his position, I think he's that far ahead of everyone
2: else. Okay. At the same, by the same token, are we downgrading the interior offensive lineman from Ohio State here? Um, I mean, I, I don't know if that's fair because Barmore is a beast and he clearly uh, ramped it up for these games. But I didn't come away exactly as impressed as I thought I would.
1: Yeah, Wyatt Davis didn't play in the second half. He got hurt, lower body injury, and he. What's interesting about him, and it's kind of the uh, mirror of what I just talked about with obviously being uh, a pass-rushing defensive tackle is more valuable than being a a run-stuffing guy, Wyatt Davis came into the season and through September, October was the consensus top guard. And you watched him, and I watched him over the summer and said, okay, like he's squatty, he's a great run blocker, he's actually pretty athletic for being kind of this fire hydrant type of guy, and you didn't see a lot of pressure, but him giving up a lot of pressures last year because so many of those Big Ten rushers were just trying to bull rush their way, did not have a lot of pass rushing plans. Uh, so you thought, okay, he's got a pretty good anchor. Last night in the first half, he was facing Christian Barmore and some other players that will eventually probably be first-round picks from Alabama that had pass rushing plans that are as strong as him and have a really quick first step off the line of scrimmage. I think you do downgrade him a little bit for the same reasons that you give Christian Barmore a boost. He was facing the best competition. He's not facing former insurance (laughs) salesmen. And I don't think he was up to the test in that first or up to the task in that first half from a pass blocking perspective. I still think he'll go in the second round. And if there are some teams late in the first that, after a bunch of offensive tackles are already off the board, he could land there. But someone that was, like, originally mocked to be this uh, top 10 or top 15 pick, I think we kind of saw throughout the season and then culminating with what happened against Clemson and then really against Alabama, that Wyatt Davis is a good, strong blocker, but he's further ahead on run plays as he is when his quarterback's dropping back to pass.
2: Yeah, and his numbers back that up from PFF, that his pass-blocking numbers are just kind of meh. And that it, that would be a huge concern for me to draft him in the first round. I, I don't think that mm-hmm. you should ever draft anyone in the first round as an offensive lineman whose strength is run-blocking. Um, you, you better be, if you're going to be a guard or a center in the first round, uh, the all-around total complete, package because guards and centers are usually guys that you don't pay a ton of money for unless they are at the absolute top. Like Brandon Treff is going to get a ton of money in free agency in the NFL because he's at the absolute top. He could do everything at an elite level. But, you know, other than that, it's it's a big drop off when you look at who gets paid. And I think you should look at it the same way with draft stock. If it's just going to be a guy whose ceiling is maybe a little above average pass blocking, you're not drafting them in the first round. You're only drafting those guys to be a huge difference maker if they're an interior offensive line. Yeah,
1: and switching over to the other side of the ball um, for Alabama, I thought their offensive line all season and in this game, and there is a caveat from the national title game, a bunch of Ohio State defensive linemen were on the COVID list. We didn't really know who they were until like an hour before the game. I think Ohio State was trying to keep that under wraps. Uh, but some of their better players, interior rushers, um, we're not able to play. Tyreek Smith, one of their edge rushers, who's had a really good season, didn't play. Um, Landon Dickerson, who won the Outland Trophy as the best center in in college football, You know, didn't play, suited up, put the knee brace on for the coin flip, okay. got to get the snap in the victory formation, which was cool. Um, but Alex Leatherwood is the guy that has been most routinely mocked in the first round from Alabama. Uh, and he's someone, I think belongs to go in the first round. He's not as flashy as certainly Pene Sewell or Elijah Vera Tucker or Sean Slater, even Christian Darasov from Virginia tech, who I really like, but I think he just does everything well. And he's a battle tested sec blocker that scouting him like a few weeks ago and, and finishing up my grade on him. He's my number five offensive tackle at this point. And I like the last thing I wrote was like, you know what you're getting with him and he's, has the length, like he checked a lot of boxes. Did he emphatically check them? No, but he's like 6'5", 325. He's probably going to have long arms. He's played guard. Uh, He's powerful. His balance is pretty good. His pass protection is just as good, if not better, than his run blocking is. So I don't think he's someone that's ever going to be an all pro, but I could see a team like in the 20s or, you know, with one of the last few picks in round one, hey, we want to add someone – that does have some versatility but is going to play the more valuable position tackle um, that is going to be like an eight- or a nine-year starter on our offensive line. I think that just watching that offensive line last night, Alex Leatherwood did such a good job. Again, still a bunch of five-star recruits on Ohio State's defensive line.
2: Right. Yeah, I didn't think he did anything to lower his stock or Mm -hmm. really raise his stock last night. I mean, anytime you ever watch Mac Jones play – He's got clean pockets, and Alex yeah. Leatherwood is one of the reasons what I like about him is just the experience that he has i mean if you're if you're drafting him you've got a player that should be able to come in and adapt pretty fast because mm-hmm. the guy has like 3,000 snaps or something like that, like 2,700 snaps, and as you mentioned, can play guard. And you kind of like that element of it too, because if you don't see something that you love at tackle right away, uh, or you're, you you know draft somebody else higher or sign a big free agent, and then he has that positional flexibility to him. Um, you know, I feel the same way as you, where you know when you look at the numbers and you watch a play, you don't go, "Oh my, that's Orlando Pace." Uh, but it, you know. <laughs> The, the, safe, the safe pick on the offensive line is good because when you think about what you need for offensive linemen, yes, we all love you know Quentin Nelson who can pick dudes up and throw them into the secondary, but when you think about you know, all 32 teams, you need to have solid players. There needs to be a baseline that you reach for these positions in order to operate as an offense, and um, I think that sometimes too often teams shoot for, hey, this guy is an unbelievable athlete can he block? Well, yeah, maybe we'll teach him. We'll we'll coach him. You know what I mean? Like uh right, but if it doesn't work out, the guy ends up being tremendously bad. And and that's the thing that you can't have when you draft an offensive line in the first round is have someone that just can't play. And so I think Leatherwood will be able to play.
1: The story you just described to me, just so you're not the one doing it and it's me Reminds me of Garrett Bradbury against Elton Jenkins mm. in the 2019 draft class. Elton Jenkins was my number one interior offensive lineman for a lot of the reasons and, and that we just described Alex Leatherwood. That you watched him at Mississippi State. He was as strong as an ox. Uh, never saw him push back into the quarterback. Was pretty agile, but he was not Garrett Bradbury in terms of how he could get across a gap. Um, and certainly Garrett Bradbury's tape at North Carolina state was not terrible, but he was more of an athlete than a blocker. Elton Jenkins goes in the second round. He's been outstanding for the Packers and it's been a much steeper learning curve for Garrett Bradbury. I think I'm not saying that. I think Alex Leatherwood will be the next Elkton Jenkins. Who's been like a, a pro bowler probably should have been an all pro. He's played multiple positions in green Bay, but that's the kind of player that you're getting super experienced. Just like Jenkins was in the sec, you know, he's faced, Future NFL players throughout his career there. And one other player before we talk about Mac Jones on Alabama's offensive line Deontay Brown, their guard. Uh, I got. This is my favorite player in college football, by the way. He is an I love absolute man. bulldozer. It reminds me of, just going back one draft class, Michael Unwenu from Michigan, who went to the Patriots like in the fifth or sixth round and was outstanding, played multiple spots guard center right tackle he was like a weird body type he was like 6'3 350 Deontay Brown is listed at 6'4 350 good (laughs) luck bull rushing him and he's not super stiff he's not someone no he's not going to be able to completely stymie Aaron Donald if they play each other week one in 2021 but he's not completely stiff and in the run game you are going to get someone and I know yes we just said pass blocking is more important but From an NFL strength perspective, I think Deontay Brown is already there, and he's probably going to go like in the third or fourth round to a smart team that says, hey, the weight room, we don't have to worry about that with him because he's not getting moved. We need to work on his technique, maybe have him lose a little bit of weight, get a little quicker. I think he's going to be a good pro because a lot of those rookies, like Garrett Bradbury, uh, struggle with strength right away. Like they're like, wow! All even that hundred or two hundred and ninety pound defensive tackle is strong as hell. Yep. Deontay Brown, you saw it against uh, Notre Dame, and you saw it last night. He's a people mover, and in pass protection, he's just impossible
2: to move backwards into the quarterback. And I think he looks like Bowser from Super Mario. <laughs> like I, that when he standing, I like I, his body shape is Bowser. Um, you know what? He, I was kind of trying to think of like. Who are guards who are this massive, like uh, Nate Newton? I mean, there are very few that you could come up with. I'll tell you my uh, comparison form would be like Richie Incognito, where the dude is an absolute unit, but why? he but he actually can move and that's mm-hmm. why I love watching him <laughs> like that is not physically possible that someone who looks like this can move and by at least the the PFF metrics he has received pretty good you know pass blocking grades which you know I I think there's something to build on there and like you said I mean yeah it, maybe it's not a first round draft pick or something but um I would pick the guy just on the fact that he's fun to watch alone. But I also think if you're, if you're like a power team, if you run that mm-hmm. type of scheme, go for it. And also if you could develop him into this, uh, advantage from size on the interior offensive line. That's just different for you. I think of like Philadelphia's guards when they were at their best with an offensive line. They had a tiny center in Jason Kelsey, but the guards next to him were like his bodyguards. They were like six five and three hundred and twenty pounds. They were enormous. And I think there's something to that of having massive At least one, but maybe even two massive guards when it comes to the pass protection because everyone's seeing Aaron Donald and saying, well, you know, these interior rushers, maybe they could be smaller. Maybe they could be lighter. And um, Aaron Donald can beat anyone because he's stronger and quicker and faster and better technique wise. But not everyone's Aaron Donald. So the rest of the guys, if you're if you have a 280 pound defensive tackle who their team drafted to try and be Aaron Donald, and your guard is three fifty, again I think it gives you a pretty good advantage that you normally don't get because a lot of guards are two ninety to three ten.
1: Yeah, definitely. So he's a name, Deontay Brown. Day two, maybe, depending on what he does at the combine, probably early day three. When he gets picked, Bowser will have been just selected (laughs) and will be entering the NFL. He's someone, and again, Michael Unwenu, I remember watching him, very similar tape that you were surprised at how well he moved at 350 pounds in college. And he had a fantastic season. Is really a foundation for what the Patriots are building on their offensive line um, in the future. So you don't just need to be a 300-pound blocker that can really move. If you can just physically overwhelm at the point of attack, I think there still is some value there. All right, I gave you the floor for Justin Fields. I want to do the same for Mac Jones. I think I'm, I have a, a hunch that it's a similar answer, that nothing really changed. But what, not even from this game, how do you view Mac Jones as a prospect? And how hard is it to, again, glean what he's done this season playing behind that offensive line that we just praised with Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle and all the talent at Alabama?
2: Yeah, okay, I might get old takes exposed for this, but I'm just gonna say it because this is what I think. If the quarterback has the same body type as me, I'm not picking him in the first round. I'm sorry. It's that just, picture like, last night was bad. It was bad. I like. I mean, even you know Baker Mayfield and quarterbacks that we don't think of as freak athletes are usually cut up because they're pro athletes and it's the NFL in 2021. I mean, you just. This is an NFL if you watch the playoffs where yeah and, and Jared Goff is in it um and he's not the greatest athlete. Jimmy Garoppolo is a real good athlete but not like Lamar Jackson level. But if you're not Tom Brady or Drew Brees in terms of your pocket presence getting the ball out insanely quick like just bat bleep crazy processing that's all-time great if you're not one of those guys what are you making up for it with it's usually athleticism and we look at those top guys that we talked about Justin Fields, Zach Wilson, um, you know Trevor Lawrence, Trey Lance these guys are all next level athletes with next level arms and, and the ability to run and, and fire rockets down the field and I mean, Mac Jones is none of those things. And Mac Jones seems to me like a guy that a team would be pretty thrilled about drafting in like 2006 or 2005 um, where, you know, a lot of your success was built on the run and then play actions off that, or, you know, maybe operating at the line of scrimmage and throwing quick passes and stuff like that. We see now it's how much can you attack down the field is the NFL in today's game. And, I'm just not sold on does he have a strong enough arm? Is he a good enough athlete? I I like a lot about him as a second round pick, as a like an, you know, Andy Dalton kind of level player that is not going to change your franchise, but could have a very long and successful career bouncing around for different teams in the NFL. But there's just a baseline to me that he doesn't meet.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty much with you. It's been so weird watching Mac Jones' season that, like, when he has a game like he had in the national title game against Ohio State, 400 yards, 80% completion, whatever it is, five touchdowns, it's like those games that are so ridiculous from a stat perspective have actually, like, worsened his stock to me. Because you you watch the game and you go, oh, swing pass to Devontae Smith, bubble screen to Najee Harris, uh, wide open target to John Mechie, like – the stats are there and he had i think his yards per attempt finished at the exact same rate as Tua Tagovailoa 2 years ago like 11.3 yards per attempt and i don't know if i've said this on this podcast yet but i've definitely tweeted about it that i think we have gotten to the point that quarterback statistics even like advanced stats and deep passes are almost irrelevant at this point because we were all blown away by what Baker Mayfield did at Oklahoma. Like, wow, look, 10 yards per attempt, 70% completion. How did he do that? But Mm -hmm. then you have to really watch the games. Dwayne Haskins, the same thing. Kyler Murray, the same thing. Jalen Hurts, the same thing. And none of these quarterbacks, oh, when they haven't had an advantage at every position, have not been able to really come close to that type of efficiency. So – I, it's like I see Mac Jones have these big games. I'm just like, oh, this is kind of a bummer because we're not seeing anything from him. I think he he is good down the field with his accuracy, but like you said earlier, a lot of those throws are from a clean pocket to a wide receiver who might only have three or four steps sometimes, and sometimes he has five or six steps on the <laughs> cornerback. So I, I think he's – and watching him last night and when they said that it was Nick Saban's sixth – national title at Alabama I was like okay one was with Tua and Jalen Hurts I don't know what makes Mac Jones that different from like a Jake Coker or an A.J. McCarron or a Blake Sims like there was always as Alabama became more of a juggernaut on offense over the last like six or seven years there have been all these like kind of random quarterbacks that have won national titles that are kind of blah prospects that went like in the fourth round or not drafted. And maybe they were in a camp for a season. uh, But a lot of which didn't ultimately pan out in the NFL whatsoever. Like, I don't know what makes Mac Jones better than all those prospects who have come before him at Alabama. And again, you don't want to scout the helmet, but I think in a way with Alabama, you kind of have to, because the environment has been so similar for all those quarterbacks and the most decorated one, Tua Tunga-Vailoa had kind of a disappointing rookie season. And I wrote it before, and this is the last point that I'll make. I wrote it before the national title game that Mac Jones kind of reminds me of Tua. Like, and I think Tua is a better athlete, but I don't think he's a great athlete. They right. have good but not great arms. You saw them hit a lot of deep throws, but not a lot of tight window passes. And their stats were elevated. And saying that a year ago, you would say, wow, you think Mac Jones should be a, a top five pick? I don't feel nearly as good about Tua's future now as I did a year ago. And that was my one concern about Tua was was if the environment isn't as good, what will happen? And the environment wasn't as good in Miami. And he had some ghastly performances from an efficiency standpoint. So yeah. if Mac Jones went in the third round, I, I, don't, I don't think that would be ridiculous at all. Even if he gets picked later, he has had a tremendous career. Hats off to him. Um, but in terms of a a first-round caliber player, I just don't see it.
2: There's a Mason Rudolph comparison maybe here with the crazy numbers and throwing down the field to open wide receivers. I would just say that when it comes to quarterbacks, most people can't do this. I mean, it's like, you know, there will be –
1: You don't have to make it be like six top quarterbacks in every draft
2: class. Some classes might
1: only have three. We shouldn't get too greedy. We have Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields. Uh, Zach Wilson and maybe even Trey Lance as like legit top prospects to try to push five or six
2: quarterbacks into the first run every year. I think it's just kind of not smart to do. Let me say one nice thing about Mac Jones uh, because we just kind of hammered him. Uh, He doesn't make a lot of mistakes and that's True. something and that is something that will keep Teams you will like that. in the NFL right that you can have a, a journeyman career a backup career and maybe even be a starter if you end up on the right situation because the thing that with top prospects I always get really worried about, and this is like the Sam Darnold thing, is, well, yeah, he led the nation interceptions, but that's no big deal. Like, no, that's a big deal. <laughs> you know. Like, Or he was yeah. sacked this number of times, or he fumbled this number of times. Like, I think Mac Jones is really good at being safe and avoiding mistakes and throwing to open wide receivers, and if you can be the guy – who could be a 500 quarterback doing that, then you're going to have a career in the NFL. It's just I'm not drafting anybody who can't become a superstar with a first-round pick at quarterback.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think ending on a positive note is a good thing. So that will do it for this Prospect Podcast. As always, remember to subscribe, rate, and review to Matt's podcast, Daily Minnesota Vikings Purple Insider, the best Daily Vikings podcast. I still haven't checked to see how many other daily Vikings podcasts there are, but I'm going to say yours is the best. I'm just going to say it is. And rate, subscribe, and review here to the Prospect Podcast. For Matthew Collar, I'm Chris Trapasso. Thank you for listening.